0: Hey, Coach Arlen here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having an exceptional week. Um, I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Dr. Jill Wiener. As a board-certified physician, anti-racism educator, conscious health meditation teacher, and certified tapping instructor, Jill's holistic method of teaching balances science, social justice, and spirituality, and delivers the incredible benefits of this integrated approach. Jill is the creator of the Conscious Anti-Racism Curriculum, in which she, along with her business partner, Dr. Maisha Claiborne, combines her insights as a white woman on her own anti-racism journey with her mind-body expertise and her 10 years of experience practicing medicine in both live trainings for corporate and healthcare and in online courses. Jill is a host of the Conscious Anti-Racism podcast, and she's also the author of the book Conscious Anti-Racism, Tools for Self-Discovery, Accountability, and Meaningful Change. Jill, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No, this is exciting. Now we met through Provisors, right? Yes. Provisors, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a a networking group for C suite and and above, right? A lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, a lot of C suite executives. Um, and I've I've been in for about a year. I think October was one year for me. How long have you been in Provisors?
1: I joined in June, I think, of twenty twenty one. Yeah,
0: so about the same. And uh, yeah, great group of people. Really enjoy this. Um. All right, uh, I want to come. I want to talk about uh, your your board certified physician. So talk about that. How you made the transition into uh, the meditation teacher, if that's something you've always done. And then we'll get into the anti racism stuff, which I think is a huge topic for uh, these times, especially. And then at some point we'll transition into talking about courage and leadership. Okay, but before we get started, I've got ten questions that I ask. Um, these are questions I ask every one of my guests. They were the questions made popular on the TV show Inside the Actors Studio was oh, James I that show. yeah James Lipton asked these questions of his Hollywood guests right from TV film and stage and I figure if they're good enough for his guests they're certainly good enough for my guests so are we
1: swearing on these because I think one of the questions involves swearing
0: that is one of the questions but we can just say it rhymes with it sounds okay. like
1: perfect, <laughs> perfect. Uh,
0: one of the guys that I interviewed talked about his shih Tzu cat so that's ah, the or okay. dog or whatever so that's the way he got around it but yeah um, we can People are smart enough. They'll get it. (laughs) All right. So first question, what is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word is consciousness.
0: Very good. What is your least favorite word? Oh,
1: um, phlegm. (laughs) (laughs) And that might be my least favorite. That's awesome. Also like my least favorite. Um, (laughs) (laughs) bodily fluid as a physician that's a whole separate topic
0: that's a separate topic yeah that's great um what turns you on
1: um like non-sexually i would say when people are like willing to examine themselves and do the work to make real change
0: and what turns you off um the patriarchy <laughs> um question 5 what sound or noise do you love oh um
1: thunderstorms Ooh, cool.
0: yeah and what turns what noise uh, do you not like
1: um, i mean Hawking up a loogie, I'd say. <laughs> We're having a theme here.
0: We are, yes. Um, all right, question seven. What is your favorite curse word?
1: Um, what do I say? I I do swear a lot, and it is something that I tried to cut out at some point and couldn't, so I gave up on that. Um, I think. The, the F word probably.
0: Okay. That seems to be the most popular. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, question eight, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Um, I think if I could sing beautifully, that would be pretty awesome.
0: And what profession would you not like to do? Um, probably has to do with phlegm, right? I'm I'm guessing.
1: I'm, I'm editing myself a little bit, but I, I would say, um, I would not like to, um, I probably wouldn't be very good at picking up trash because it, the smell makes me gag.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: I was there with you all along.
0: Very nice. Good job. All right, without bringing up phlegm again, uh, we're gonna talk about your background, <laughs> certified physician, uh, some of the work that you've done, your anti-racism work uh, that you're you're involved in now some of the great things you're doing with that. Um, and like I said, some at posi- some point in time we're gonna transition into talking about courage and leadership. All right? Yeah, so listeners, we'll be talking about that and more. so stick with us. well, you don't have to imagine any more. You can have that and more when you join my business success mastermind group. Join my business success mastermind group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. All right, and I'm back with my guest, Jill Wiener. Jill, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. I've been looking forward to the conversation. Um, so tell me, how did you get started as a when you were a kid? Did you want, did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Is that something you'd always wanted to do?
1: I grew up in a family of too many doctors and I just like, it was always an option when I, like when I was a kid though, I never said I want to be a doctor, but I think when I went to college, I was like, let me just do pre-med just in case. And then I, um, and then I worked for a doctor um, some point in college, maybe I don't know after sophomore year or something like that in college and got to work in a medical assistant role. Okay. And I loved it. I really uh, had a great experience. And so that really solidified it for me. It, I think there was an inevitability around it as well. Um, it was like a, I don't want to say it's a default because I did want to do it, but it was like, if, if I don't find anything else, I can always still
0: do that. Yeah. And so what type of medicine did you find?
1: Uh, internal medicine. I was hospital-based. So I took care of people admitted to the hospital with pneumonia and kidney disease and liver disease and all that, all that oh. stuff
0: all kinds of things. And was that here in the Atlanta area or in
1: Chicago? I, I did yeah. med school at Emory and then I uh, did my residency in Seattle. And then I worked um, at rush hospital in Chicago for 10 years.
0: Very cool. Good job. And then when did you start into the meditation? Is that something you'd always done?
1: No, 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 no. I was like the least likely to meditate ever. <laughs> um, I, so I started I finished my medical training in 2006 and then um, worked for five years as, as an attending, which is like the you know supervising doctor role and five years in. So in 2011, I got really burnt out and um, I kind of hit enough rock bottom that I was like, fine, I'll do, I'll do whatever I can, like whatever it takes. And at that point I met someone who told me they meditated twice a day. And I was like, that sounds really cool. Tell me everything. And literally I'm, I was like the least spiritual, most type, a most like busy minded person. Um, and then I went to hear his teacher, uh, give his little free intro talk, which is sort of like the sales pitch and in the tradition that I, uh, now teach in, I don't, I don't do my business that way anymore, but, um, and everything he said, I was like, that's everything that's happening inside of me right now. You're, You're like, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. So I signed up for the course it's a four day course. And, um, you know, by the end of it, I was not even four whole days, just like an hour and a half each day, Hmm. meditating 20 minutes, twice a day regularly and felt amazing. Um, so that, that kind of started the whole meditation thing. And for me, it actually did fix my burnout for a lot of doctors. It's not just about internal stuff, but for me, that was really what it was. Um, and I practiced medicine really happily after that for several years.
0: Nice. Yeah. I don't know that I could practice medicine. I'm too empathetic. I take on all the illnesses and the pains and everything like that. I just, that would be tough. And I know a lot of doctors and, and nurses are complaining about the burnout right now, especially with all the COVID stuff that's going
1: yeah. on. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the medical training sort of beats out a lot of the compassion and empathy, which is mm. sad and necessary and horrible, you know, it's, it's, it's not good, but you sort of learn to not cry every time. Yeah. Um, but then you feel like a horrible person because you're not as I felt like a horrible person. I'll speak from me. Um, I remember I had a patient my first year of residency. He was a 19 year old with leukemia and mm-hmm. it was in January and, and she ended up dying and it was the sad. It's like still like one of the saddest things I've ever had to be a part of. And I just remember crying and feeling like, Oh my God, I'm crying again. Like I have, yeah emotions and, and it felt oddly good to, to reconnect with my emotions in that way. So if if that illustrates at all, what medical training can do to you, it's, it's very, um, confusing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just had a conversation earlier with a guy that his wife is really at that, the the verge of of burnout Mm -hmm. just because it's, it's hard to compartmentalize after a while, you know, those, those walls break down and it all starts blending together and stuff. Yeah. So now you teach meditation also.
1: I do. I do.
0: Do you do Um, that online or do you have uh, a studio? So in like
1: 2014, I decided I wanted to become a a meditation teacher in my tradition, which is like a three month teacher training in India. Mm. So I kind of like finagled that with my boss and, um, and got that all set up to do. Um, And so I ended up going to India for three months, um, fully expecting really that I would, come back and practice medicine in Chicago and teach meditation. But um, I had the opportunity to travel for a little bit before I went. And then I was gone for three months. And by the by the time I had been out of medicine for about six months, I realized I, I don't really see myself in that anymore. Um, and I was just, I felt like I had something else to offer to the world, yeah. uh, which I didn't feel like I had before. So, um, so I started teaching meditation I teach a live course. That's the same one that I took the four days in a row, and then I okay. also um, created an online version. That's um, that's done. You know, it's pre recorded on demand.
0: Nice. Yeah. Very cool.
1: And I do retreats too, which is fun. It's oh awesome. yeah, yeah. It's see, retreats. <laughs> <the> words. Yeah.
0: <laughs> retreats are awesome. Um, all right. So then you got involved in the anti racism stuff. You had a, a great story about kind of how that came about.
1: Yeah. Um, so I finished my meditation teacher training in April of 2016, and I don't know how much you've delved into the world of wellness, but it tends to be very white in the United States. And it also tends to be very like, uh, potentially focused too much on positivity and potentially not paying attention to the world around, um, and being realistic about what's happening in my life might be different from what's happening in your life. So I wrote a a blog post, um, after the 2016 election and a friend read for my like meditation teacher self, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm being so wise. I'm sharing, you know, (laughs) and, um, and, uh, it was basically titled we're all going to be okay. I promise. Hmm. And I proceed to like describe how, and then a friend reached out and she said, I thought m- you might want to read this since you're coming from a place of presumed authority. Uh, and it was an article written by a black man called Dear White People, Please Stop Telling Us It's Going to Be OK. And she said, I think your post is really privileged. You may want to read this. Mm-hmm. And I was like. What? No, de- de- defensive and, you know, angry. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the, sort of the end of my friendship with this woman after like a very long teetering teetering uh demise of this friendship and so I was not like super receptive but but I ultimately realized I don't want to be whatever it is that she says I'm being I I did read the article and so I just started reading and doing my own personal exploration of it which is earlier than some white people have done it but but like still it was six years ago it wasn't like I've been doing this I and I always thought that I was I always thought that I was doing right, you know, but I realized that there was so much that I was missing and didn't understand. And, um, so that's what started the journey. And then I eventually went on, I never thought I'd be doing it professionally in any way. Um, and then I went on an allyship training, um, in early 2019. And, um, started putting the pieces together that I have learned a lot about my own place in this world in terms of race and it's been really hard, and I've used tools to help me process that. Yeah. and maybe I can do that. That's how I can contribute in my own little way in my lane. because um, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to go to Capitol Hill to get things changed and not you know, I, I only I have a certain skill set. and so I realized I could help teach other people how to use these tools so they can engage in equity work, um, in a, in a really meaningful way that is not, not causing harm and it's actually contributing rather than, um, than maybe doing more, doing more harm than good. Um, yeah. so, um, and I met, I partnered with, um, started working together with my partner, Dr. maisha Claiborne, who you mentioned in the intro. Um, she is an incredible physician, uh, also, um, NLP practitioner, which is neuro-linguistic programming, Mm -hmm. um, hypnotherapist, and she is a black woman. And so she said, Hey, have you ever thought about doing this work with someone that is not white? And I was like, yes, please. I, you know, I just, I always felt like I wanted to, but I didn't know if I had the right to ask or you know, I just didn't know how, how that would work. And so the two of us teamed together and, um, wrote our book together and, and created our online course. And we do, um, live and virtual trainings as well. So it's been like a completely unexpected shift of an off, an offshoot of my offshoot. Um, but the thing that I feel really the most uh, passionate about.
0: Awesome. What was the biggest lesson or the hardest lesson that you learned from your studies?
1: Um, in terms of anti-racism?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I think realizing the harm that I've caused my whole life without realizing it um mm-hmm. and all the opportunities I've missed um by not knowing better and by not looking yeah. to know better.
0: Like what? Give I me an think- give me an example.
1: Um I don't know. Hearing racist jokes as a kid and not thinking twice about it. Um uh having negative like like thinking like angry black women stereotypes about some of my medical trainees that were not <laughs> you know yeah. it was just like yeah. my own perspective without really like learning what that, that was a thing a, a stereotype that is not correct and and if there's anger it's justified because sure. of the way the system is set up so i think those would be two examples i could go on yeah. forever though i mean there's i think
0: there's- to me it's the, it's the subtle things i mean there's there's out and out racist humor that you hear. Right. I, I worked, used to work in a factory uh, Lockheed aircraft out in California. It, it mm-hmm. was everywhere. And it, it just kind of was just part of that, that culture seemed like, you know, nobody blinked an eye at it, but it's the subtle things. It's the little things that you don't realize when you say that here's the connotation or here's the the meaning that it has. And yeah. and you start thinking, it's like, whoa, you know, nowadays we're looking at, uh, I think when you and I talked before, um, my wife and I, every once in a while, we'll look at a, an old TV program. So we'll watch Love Boat, or we'll watch, you know, Fantasy Island. One of these things, the subtle racist type things that are in there that we didn't even notice at first, and now you're just like, "Wow, that would never fly today." Yeah,
1: we were just drinking it up, and yeah. we meaning white people, but like maybe all of society. I can only speak from my own experience, but I think you and I talked about like John Hughes movies with mm-hmm. 16 candles and. And the Asian character on there, the horrible story, we thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And it's horrible. And I, I interviewed an Asian man for my podcast and he was talking about his lived experience when that movie came out. And it's just like, we, we were just drinking it and like digesting it and metabolizing it and (laughs) spreading it and not, not having any idea. Sometimes there would be like a sense, Ooh, this is naughty, but it, it like, and, and I, I had a conversation with one of my meditation students recently who, who grew up with a lot of trauma and like walking on eggshells. And she's like, Jill, I feel so sorry for you that you have to like be so careful about what you say about everything all the time. And I was like, I hear you and I see where you're coming from. And also for me, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels like a, like an honor to do that because I'm, you know, people can roll their eyes about, wokeness and you know whatever right-wing right, things that right. like misappropriated but but what it's about is 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 give like helping contribute to other people being able to live a life that is free from being insulted and minimized all the yeah. time and worse so it, it's like how what can I do to make someone else feel comfortable it is is like the very least I can do so for me it feels like I love being able to do that.
0: Yeah, I think the, it, in talking with with friends and stuff about this, because this topic does come up every once in a while. I'll, there's there's humor and there's there's things that are funny, and there's sarcasm, right? And and sarcasm, I think, has a place. The sarcasm has a, a, a history where you could actually say things about the king or queen sarcastically to get the point across and everybody knew you were being sarcastic. It wasn't really meant to, to harm or anything like that. Where's that line? And is that line finally being defined or is it still kind of a, a gray area?
1: Uh, in terms of like what humor is appropriate or what? Yeah. You know, because uh,
0: like I said, sarcasm is, is we're sarcastic in the house all the time. My brother in law comes over, we're out playing darts, we're sarcastic with each other all the time. Those type of things you you'll say something about, say one of the guys that's out playing darts with us. And we know it's in jest. The guy that we're saying it to knows it's in jest. It's, you know, it's but where that's the fine line that I'm still trying to understand where that line is, you know? Yeah.
1: it's a great question. And you know, one of the things that's always helpful for me to remember is is the phrase, and I didn't invent this at all. I don't know if any like if, if it can be attributed to anyone, but it's certainly not attributed to me, but in intent is not the same as impact. Mm-hmm. So what I meant by something yeah. is not the same as how it's received. And that's and huge. So, yeah. And that's huge. And that's the same, like with feedback, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, like in, in the professional space, I can give the feedback I want. If it's not received in a way that felt like feedback, then I mean, there's the onus is on both people, mm-hmm. but, but certainly um, I'm, I think a lot of people laugh on the outside, but they're not, they're not laughing on the inside. And yeah. um, I, I feel like I've potentially one can make fun of their own identity as much as they want to. But in terms of poking fun at other people's identities, I feel like that's really like, if there's any question, just don't, don't. because there's other yeah. things to talk about, you know, there's other things there <laughs> like, let's lift it up rather than exactly. at it. So I, I think, you know, com- comedians stuff that comedians joke about similar to what you were saying about TV shows has very much changed. But if we can't be funny without like t- tearing other people down, then I feel like we have, we have other things to be worrying about, I guess. Um,
0: no, that's uh, my wife, always says that because uh, as management consultants, a lot of what we did was helping um, executives be better communicators, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't communicate, you can't really lead efficiently. But she always said communication is a, an away game. It's not what you say, it's what they hear. Yeah. You know, if if you say something, I mean, I words have certain connotations for me. They may have a totally different connotation for you. Um, so when I say something, meaning X, you hear something that says Y to you. That's really on me to understand the language, understand and and try to set that common ground so then the communication can happen. A lot of times, like you said, if I'm joking with somebody and I uh, self deprecating humor, which I do, um, that's fine because I know I'm joking. Everybody knows they get it. When you start poking fun at somebody else, that's where the harm starts.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, we are all, we do and we continue to and always will make mistakes. And I think. A huge part of it is not having to say the perfect thing all the time, but being able to like hear and like listen and respond when someone says, Hey, that wasn't right. Or, or like, like noticing the body language or something yeah. like that and not saying, Oh, I didn't mean to, or, Oh, this and that, like, but, but it's just saying, wow, I I've, I've hurt your feelings. Can you share more about that with me? Or I'm so sorry. I've caused you pain. Yeah. But, and I think that goes a really long way too, because we're going to we're going to say things because we can't anticipate sure. you know talking about um love with someone who's just gone through a breakup is going right. to be really upsetting to them potentially and so we we can't live our lives having we we can't anticipate everything it's yeah. not really possible and also being open to what someone else's experiences and and being able to apologize and and receive that feedback i think is it's not easy to do yeah it's not really something All people are born with that ability, but it is, I think really important and goes a long
0: way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you never know who's listening. You never know who hears, you know, and even if I have a circle of friends where we're comfortable joking with each other, somebody passing by somebody in the general area might hear something that could offend them. And I think that's, that's difficult too. If this was a conversation between us and that person way over there got offended, Ah. that's, that's tough for me. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you were offended, but they have to, I think, take on a little bit of responsibility for eavesdropping almost, you know what I'm saying? I, it's,
1: I do. I hear you. I hear you, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like, I, I hear that. And it depends on, you know, the, the situational there's context to sure. what you were just saying, but there's this concept called white silence or like the white, um, white, uh, white, white science is, is one of them, but for the white code. And it's basically like, there's a group of white people making racist jokes. There may not be anyone around who's not white, but by allowing that to continue to go on is still causing harm because it's like that silence is it's actually perpetuating it. harm. It's perpetuating mm-hmm. it. it's allowing it. And it's, it's missing out on a chance as a white person to actually like, advocate for people who aren't there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, I, I like, I I had a very interesting situation at a dinner party. Um, it's actually my partner's family and his dad used to be a priest and, uh, one of his priest friends was over at the house for dinner and the priest was saying a lot of stuff that was like inappropriate and in our my my 8-year-old stepkids were there. Um and then he started telling a story from his civil rights day and he like used the n-word but like said it full out at the at the table recounting what someone was saying to him because he was fighting for, you know he was protesting with black people but it was just like ah, and no one in the room was black but it was it just there were children sitting there and it was horrible so I I spoke up because I don't, I personally don't believe, and I think many people agree that one should never use that word if one is not Black. Like, I'm not going to judge what anyone Black says about themselves or, you know, amongst themselves or whatever, or amongst whoever, not my job, but I don't think anyone who's not Black has any right to say that, just the same way with other slurs in other um, mm-hmm. cultures. So I spoke up. And he got very, you know, defensive and upset that I would suggest anything. And I d- wasn't actually calling him a racist. All I said was, I don't think it's okay to use that word, but if I hadn't spoken up, then if I had taken him aside, the kids would have just heard that and just thought right. it was okay. Right. And everyone else around would have been like, cool, I guess we're just doing that now, you know? And so I think I, I, <laughs> I probably didn't, I know I didn't do it perfectly. I was just kind of like, shocked that it was happening and doing my best. And it was awkward because I hadn't been with my partner that long at that time. But, you know, that's one of the, what's one of the things about privilege that we can do to be allies is to really speak up in those situations because you don't know who's listening and, and, and it doesn't even matter who's listening. It's, 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 it's contributing to harm if we don't speak up. And I think that's something like a lot of opportunities to lead to cultural shift, if yeah. if we yeah. all did more of that,
0: absolutely no, and I totally agree. We had a, um, a friend who would always start. Well, I don't mean this to sound racist. Mm-hmm. It's like then yeah. just don't say it. Say it. Right. Well, no, but I want no. If you're saying I don't mean this, that mm-hmm. means that what you're about to say is yeah. So just don't talk, you know. And it's uh, they don't. It's eye opening. You know, a lot of times now that now that you're a little bit more conscious of things that are going on and stuff like that. And my wife and I talk about it all the time. We hear something and it's like, ooh, that should not be said or that, you know. Yeah. And it, I mean, if you're in a restaurant, you can't go over to somebody and thump them on the head and say, don't ever talk that way again. <laughs> Although you may want to, but you can't. Um, laws and paperwork and everything like that. But, you you know, we're more conscious of, of things that we say and things that we watch, things that we're seeing on, on television or, or movies, things like that. And it is subtle, but it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So talking about courage.
1: yeah.
0: one of the courage we uh, talk about on the podcast is um, there's there's moral courage doing what's right, even if it's mm-hmm. unpopular, social courage saying what needs to be said, even if it's unpopular. Where did you find the courage to stand up and say, "Hey, I've been doing this wrong and I want to help other people understand. Where did you find that courage? Where or when? Uh, either Where. and Where. both. Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. I, it it was a process and, and, and looking back, it seems ridiculous that it should be a process. It It seems like just effing, like say it, you know, like what are we so afraid of? But it's like a cultural indoctrination to be afraid. To talk about that kind of thing so giving myself like a slight bit of grace there but um i remember after i went on that allyship um retreat and i had i think posted some stuff before on my social media but i wrote like a really long blog post about like why i'm part of the problem and like white supremacy culture and like this whole thing and I put, I sent it out to my email list and I was like, I know most of you are used to me talking about like meditation and stuff. And don't worry, I'm not going to be talking about this. Like all the time. I just, I had this experience and I want to share. And then I was just, I realized like, you know, we're all evolving. So I realized like a little while later, I was like, what was I apologizing for? Like, if they want it, what am I afraid of? Are they going to unfollow me? Are they going to unsubscribe from my list? Fine. Unsubscribe from my list. There's this weird, like, especially as an entrepreneur too, it's like, what if, and so, and so I posted something again later and I said, you know, a couple months ago, I posted this blog post and I apologize. And, and I just want to be clear. This is the last time I'm going to apologize for talking about race. And so I think for me, it was a stepwise process, but um, I think what, I don't know, like once this is, I think the difference between anti-racism education and DEI work. Mm-hmm. it's like DEI work is very much like functional. It's mm-hmm. the how. And in anti-racism work, it's like once you really understand, I can't, I can never understand, understand. I'm never going to have a different lived experience. But right. like once you really learn and dive into it and 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 hear more about and and witness what, what is happening in this world, um, it becomes impossible to unsee, nor would I want to unsee it. And and it becomes just for me like a There's no choice. Like I'm going to speak up every time. Yeah. And and if I'm not, if I miss, if I miss the opportunity, I'm going to do something about it later, or I'm going to share maybe publicly what happened when I didn't speak up. And like, here's, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to always say, but it, 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 it took me a while to get there. Um, so I think it's more just like doing that work and, and really connecting more with other human beings. Um, It feels like viscerally bad if I don't, if that makes sense.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And so the the, um, diversity, equity, inclusion, like I said, that's a big part of this, but that's more how to integrate that into um, the business and everything like that. That's kind of the, how this is the the why behind it. Right. Yeah.
1: It's like, I I say it's the what and the why it's like, who, who, Involved. what is their experience and and how has this happened what's the history what how is it manifesting now what are what are ways it can show up that we would never recognize yes bad racial slurs we can recognize yeah. but there's so many other ways that it shows up sure. culturally power dynamics like there's so much there um and and then plus there's that barrier of the discomfort that isn't always addressed in let's say a bias training right. or a right. DEI workshop like we have to we what I really believe and what Maisha and I do together is this this work is embodied and it, it's it, like these culture these cultural norms that we have yeah they they live inside of us and if we aren't able to find tools to or use tools to take action against that and to not, not reverse it, I guess, but like right. to, to eradicate it or to start to, it's going to like it's the inertia of the status quo keeps pulling people back that like um, that, like pushback against it. And so we, we need tools to understand why is it so hard? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it shouldn't be, but like, it is a lot of times why, and what can I do about it? And that's how how we feel at least, really how we can move forward.
0: Yeah. But then, so a conversation had a while back with a, a friend, a coworker, um, a lot of people are coming up now and saying, okay, that offends me and that offends me and that offends me and that offends me. And now we have brands changing their product names. Um, mm-hmm. We have sports teams changing their their sports names. We have. Is there a, a time where you can say that's that's enough, or or do we have to? And I don't want to say whitewash because that's the wrong that's the wrong term altogether. But where does it where does it end? Is this just a, a perpetual type? You know, I want to change that. I want to change that. Where does it Where does it stop? Or does it? Is there a stopping point?
1: I think that's it's a it's a very interesting question, and i i I feel like. I want to pull back a little bit to who, who, who has decided they have the, the, who, who has decided or who has been understood or assumed to have the power to make decisions about team names and about sporting things and about, you know, uh, company names, who, who is the one who is able to decide whether or not, something should be said or used, a name. And typically that's whiteness, white people who are kind of held in place as the, like the sort of default of what's the normal thing. So white people decided it was okay to name a, a team, the Washington Redskins, for example. Um, I don't think it's my, my role, I'll speak for me to determine whether or not someone should or shouldn't be offended by something. Cause, cause I'm applying my like white lens to everything of like, well, here's what I think is normal. And this is just how we do it. But I don't, I'm not having that experience on the other side. So, so I don't, I think that that's part of the whole like dynamic in this country is who holds the power. And so it's real easy for the people in power to be like, you know, poo on you like stop complaining but we're we're not being our we're not being uh commodified in that way yeah so i think Mm -hmm. it's 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 bringing it back to to power um which is a really really fascinating aspect of of this work is understanding like personal uh you know individual uh cultural and um like um organizational power structures yeah. and who holds the power like who gets to decide if the word white supremacy culture is offensive or not like it makes white people uncomfortable but does that mean that it shouldn't be used if that's what it's describing and and do I as a white person have the right to say i don't want to use that term because it makes me uncomfortable versus i'm not the only one who has a say in it so it it's it's Fascinating and it's complex, yeah. and um, it's the
0: complexity I think that yeah. that has everybody on edge because you don't know. Uh, yeah, white supremacist. You know, I I don't like that term. It's probably very accurate. I don't like the term. It makes me uncomfortable. But for somebody to say, well, I don't want um, the Atlanta Braves. I think that's offensive, or the Washington Redskins. That's offensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if especially if a, a brand um, or a, a term is used let's say for the braves the braves were the the warriors of the um, indigenous people right the Indians as we call them um, they were the 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 top of their game they were the so it's it's almost like the intention was to say these are our warriors are are you know strong you know so it wasn't it wasn't meant as a derogatory term it was meant with maybe good intention but that's kind of swept off to the side because you know it's it, that's there's so much this is this is so complex this whole topic
1: yeah i think hmm. i think i've I've done a lot of work with appropriation because in the meditation community like a lot is appropriated from ancient indian knowledge and sure. ancient ancient knowledge and so I as a white person appropriate that a lot. And so I've done my own work to kind of understand that Mm -hmm. Um, there's appropriation and there's appreciation. And what I've learned, Susanna Barkataki is this amazing um, uh, yoga teacher who's an Indian woman. And she does a lot of great work about cultural appropriation in that space. But, you know, is the the question that I really ask as has there been harm to the source culture? Uh And, and if so, that's when it crosses the line. Okay. So it's, 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 it's taking something from another culture and, and benefiting from it in some way, commodifying it when, when it, when that har- when that source culture has been harmed for that. So I, I, I believe it is un, undisputed that there was a genocide in this country, that indigenous people were slaughtered and, and murdered and, and, you know, sure. attempted to make them disappear. And sure. And part of the thing with indigenous people now is like, they've been rendered almost invisible in some ways. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's not actually true. Here's your
0: one square mile of land. Yeah,
1: exactly. And like, we're not going to talk about the the history and we're not going to talk about all the broken treaties and all the, you know, we're not going to talk about that in education. And we're just going to like, yes, exactly. Give you three inches of land. And so to then say, oh, okay, I'm taking this thing from, this culture that was erased or attempted to have been erased and, and, and beyond that, you know, destroyed. And then to be like selling it yeah. and selling Tomahawks. And, and I was doing the Tomahawk shop with the best of them in uh, 1991 when I was in high school and the break. I mean, it was like the greatest thing in the world, it was so much fun, but exactly. But like year two, I was like, Oh God, stop. I just, once I kind of realized how it would be making, and this was like, I was in high school still. So, or maybe, yeah, I was still in high school then. So um, I think that's really a a great place to start. Um, You know, uh, hair is a great example. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of black people get really um, uh, mistreated or uh, discriminated against by, depending on how they wear their hair and white Mm -hmm. people seem to think that they have a right to tell other people how they can or can't wear their hair. But then if white people are wearing like an Afro wig at a mm-hmm. party mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, getting getting braids or something like that on vacation, like it's right. it's like that was or, or wearing like big baggy clothes that black people get arrested for wearing or maybe right. shot like that's that's. But it works weird. its
0: way yeah. into the culture and it becomes a fashion, you know, there yeah. are a lot of blacks you see with the long, straight blonde hair. It's a a wig, but they're, Mm -hmm. and I don't, I've never really liked the term appropriating. And I understand that that's what has happened over the time. But I think a lot of the stuff has worked its way into our culture, fashion, uh, music, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. It's, that's what I'm saying. Where, where does it, where does it stop? You know, I like your, your definition between the appropriation and appreciation. Yeah. I appreciate food from all these different cultures i would never say i was appropriating their food and i'm not gonna you know change my entire diet just because of of, you know this culture or that culture and stuff but it's like i said there's just so many uh, facets to this to explore
1: well yeah and stuff does become like mainstream but then you think have have people been systematically abused for having blonde hair and, and, and so is, is, is
0: there are a lot of dumb blonde jokes. So yes,
1: there are a lot of dumb blonde <laughs> jokes, but of course, but you know what I mean? So it's like different. Yeah. It's like when it's the, when it's the group in power, right. It It's a, it's a different, it's a different. But power. if I get
0: my hair done in a, a fro, which I'll, I'll admit to you, I'll probably edit this part out <laughs> But back in high school or actually, yeah, in high school, I did have a fro. Mm-hmm. If I do something like that, people say you're appropriating the culture because that's kind of the hairstyle or something like that but then if you see somebody else with their hair straightened and blonde that's not appropriating what what's the difference between the two if, if it's well, the I exact say- same thing on each side then yeah it, it
1: it's not the exact same thing on either side because white people have never been harmed for having straight blonde hair they've been lauded and, 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 and and adored and admired for having straight blonde hair. So, so there has not been any harm to people with straight blonde hair. So like want, wanting to look like that might be like a an, ex, you know, a fashion statement. Mm-hmm. It might be, you know, wanting to, wanting to blend in. It might be wanting to, to not have to deal with, I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish and I have curly brown hair and it's like I'm not at all equivocating my hair with, with what black people go through of sure. society with their hair. But like, I always just wanted straight hair that was like flowy and awesome. And so I can like straighten my hair. That's not appropriating because again, the straight hair is the cultural norm. That's like yeah. the ideal of what we think is pretty, you know, and attractive. Yeah. So if you if your hair grows curly and wild and that's how you want to grow it, I think that's fine. Yeah, I think it's like if you wear a wig of that, you know, then for a, as a costume, right? Then, then I mean, and again, I'm not the determinator. The determinator, determiner no. of oh, the determinator. I like that. I'm not the determiner of what is or isn't appropriate. Right. Like in all, certain you know, I, I I can't answer for all of that. No. But I would say it's like the concept of reverse racism. Mm-hmm. There's prejudice and there's bias and there's even discrimination. But the, the racism is about the power dynamic, and so. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I know a, a doctor who, um, went to a black medical school and I guess he got a lot of flack for being white in that school. And I know, I know him and he's a little, like, I can imagine that he, he came in a little bit thinking he knew better.
0: Yeah.
1: And so he was like, I think your social justice work is kind of cute, Jill, but like, this was my experience. Well, this is like one man's experience <laughs> in one medical school, right. but and the micro system within that, sure, the bl- black people had more numbers and more power. But systematically, it's the opposite of that. And so, using individual examples of when a black person might have been mean to a white person, or an Asian person might have said something bad about someone who's who's, you know, from Mexico or something, it's it's none of that's great. I don't think that's like good. But it's not racism. It's not reverse racism because. That's the power dynamic. And so I think the power dynamic also comes into play with um, thinking about cultural things, appropriation or other things that may, jokes and stuff that may um, cause harm.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the appropriation really has to do with the harm that's done. And like we've we've said, uh, I can't tell you whether you're offended or not. That's your decision, right? Yeah. So for me to say, oh, they shouldn't worry about that. Well, it's up to them. If, exactly. if something that you said offends, then, you know, own it and apologize for it, learn yeah. from it and, and do better next time.
1: Yeah. And and, and it's also, um, it, to, to clarify even further, it's not just is what I'm doing right now causing harm, but has this culture been harmed as a whole for this specific thing that I'm appropriating? Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. like in India, um, when the British colonized they like caused intentional famines to kill off Indian people and, and imprisoned and otherwise punished Indian people for, for doing yoga and, and their own indigenous culture. And then now white people are like taking it, over, you know, taking it over to the U S and having t-shirts that say like namaste y'all and, and stuff like that. And, and so it's like, it's not just, is my t-shirt offensive, but is my t-shirt offending one person, but is, is the source of this t-shirt, something that was like led another culture to be harmed for being who they are. Yeah.
0: And, and I remember in, in college, um, I wrote a paper about an Indian author that talked about uh, when the white man first came to settle uh, across the the U S mm-hmm. and they would come into these little villages and gather all the people and say, now you will pray to this God and this little white church. And this is how things, and they would take the children dress them in the white man's clothes, cut their hair off. And for the Indians, the hair was um, a sign of, of, of power. It was a sign of um, maturity and, and things like mm-hmm. that. Just, you know, it was important to them. They would cut the hair off very short, which was almost shaming these children. Well, yeah. the settlers didn't realize that's what it meant. But to that culture, that's what it meant. And they were actually coming in and imposing that. And that, that was a strong, strong picture for me you know, learning about that and stuff. Yeah. And now you just take that and zoom back out a little bit and look at everything else that's been done around the world. There's a lot of episodes like that.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, this is a huge topic. I don't think we can do it justice in just one episode. I would love to have mm-hmm. you back on. Maybe your partner too, if she's available. Sure. Have her come on Our and, uh, yeah, talk a little bit more about this because this, like I said, there's just so many, so many things I'm, I'm trying to be better. Uh, my wife, my family, we're trying to be better about things like that, but I know we make mistakes, but it's about owning it, learning it and and trying to do better. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Jill, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. If people want to get in touch with you and learn more about this, the courses you teach and everything like that, uh, where can they get in touch with you? What's your website?
1: Uh, my website's just my name. So Jill Wiener, W E N E R.com. And that's going to have um, a, a, a link for my meditation programs, a link for my tapping programs, which is another um, modality that I teach. And then there's also a link to all the anti-racism work and uh, the allyship coaching that I do as well.
0: Perfect. I didn't touch on the tapping. Can you briefly talk about the tapping? What, how that works, and and why it works?
1: Sure. Sure. Um. So, uh, it is a um wellness stress reduction uh, modality. That has its roots in um, acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine. Um, in in that uh, this the the same places where you might put the needles in acupuncture, those are called meridians, So they're like known mapped out energy centers on the body. Um, and instead of using needles, we use acupressure or tapping. And um, that tapping while actually saying out loud, whatever it is that is distressing you. So a lot of times we talk about being positive and wanting to look at the bright side and don't put, don't give your energy to negative stuff, but negative stuff happens. And we have all those emotions. And so what this does is help to process those. So we go through the tapping points or sort of like a sequence that you go through saying things out loud. I'm anxious. I'm so anxious. I'm anxious about my presentation. What if they think I, what if I, you know, stumble, or what if I forget what I'm supposed to say, or what if they ask questions I can't answer. And you just say that stuff out loud as you're tapping, it. it's actually sending calming signals to the stress center of our brain, allowing it to rewire the way it's mm-hmm. processing that stimulus. And it works very quickly. Um, there's great medical, like scientific evidence for it. Uh, it looks really weird. Mm-hmm. So like I, it took me a couple times being exposed to it before I was like, okay, what is this? I'll give it yeah. a try. Um, and it's, it's great. I love, I do it in group settings. I do it one-on-one. I've used it a ton during COVID to support healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't have to do it all the time. You don't, there's no learning curve and it's, it's guided. So it's not like you have to, as an individual wanting help with it, that individual doesn't have to learn how to do it. I sort of do the work for them. So you just sit there and tap and say the things out loud and just let yourself feel the things. but
0: it's, it's mapped out. Like you said, there's a sequence you go through yeah. and it is very centering. I, I did this years, five, seven years ago. It's very centering because you're focused on that act or that, that anxiety. And you talk, what is that anxiety? You're bringing it out. This is what I'm anxious about. But then you also start going back through the positive. Here's how I, I want it to be or how I see it being. And it yeah. is, it's very calming, very centering.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. I love it. I used it myself for about a year and a half as a human being with problems and, uh, loved it so much that I decided to, uh, train to be a practitioner and I just love it. It's, it's so powerful and it works really quickly and it's safe. Uh, it's great with trauma. It's great with phobias, grief, um, like anything basically can be tapped on. So I I love it.
0: Very cool. Very cool. All right. So go out to the website, jillweiner.com. Uh, you can find information on the conscious anti-racism work, um, and your meditation and tapping and everything else. You're also on LinkedIn, right? Yes. Joe Weiner on LinkedIn. Very cool. Well, I will have those links in the show notes. So when people come out to listen to the podcast, they'll be able to, uh, get those links and come out and connect with you. And I would, like I said, I'd love to have you back on the show again.
1: Awesome. I'd love to, would love to be back. Thanks for the conversation and thanks for the, the honest questions. Cause it's not always, I just kind of want to honor. It's like not always easy to ask the questions, and also to like, be like, oh, cool, all right, and 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 hear answers that may yeah. may or may not be what one uh, thought they would be hearing. No, I'm so-
0: very curious, very curious about this, and it, it's not always easy to ask. Um, yeah, but again, the courage to lead, right?
1: Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: All right, listeners, hope you guys were taking a lot of notes. There's some good information here. Uh, we will do it again, so be looking for uh, future episodes. But go and check out Jill's website and get some information on her programs. Um, Hope you appreciate this episode. If you do make sure you share it with your family, friends and colleagues and stick around because there's always more coming. And that's it for me. Coach Harlan saying so long for now.